Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II, that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the necessary shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined, as always, by my partner in all things having to do with strategy, grand and less grand, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C., and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing just fine, Eric. You know, I've been thinking for some time that uh, you and I have talked an awful lot about Russia-Ukraine. We've talked about um, Israel Gaza more recently. We've been talking about China and strategic issues in the Indo-Pacific. We've talked about American uh, political dysfunction, but we haven't been able to pull it all together. So I think we should import some talent to enable us to do that. What do you say? Funny that you should mention that. We have imported some talent to the United States from across the pond to do that because our very special guest on this 75th episode of Shield of the Republic, which is a bit of a milestone for us, is Bruno Tertre, the deputy director of the Fondation pour la Recherche Stratégique, the Foundation for Strategic Research, one of France's leading think tanks. Bruno, who, in addition to being a, a friend and longtime colleague of both uh, Elliot's and mine, is, I think, arguably the best exemplar in France of an intellectual style that I admire enormously because one of my intellectual heroes is the late Raymond Daron. And Bruno is a student of Pierre Hasner's, who was perhaps the greatest student of Raymond Daron's. And I, I think Pierre was also a student of Leo Strauss. So that is uh, a, an incredible uh, at, you know, uh, intellectual pedigree. Bruno has worked at the NATO Parliamentary Assembly at RAND, at the Ministry of Defense. Uh, he's been involved in, I think, every uh, French Ministry of Defense white paper for the probably the last 20 years, and is the author of more books than I can possibly recite in the time frame of our podcast, but most recently, the author of La Guerre des Mondes, Le Retour de la Géopolitique et le Choc des Empires, The War of the Worlds, The Return of Geopolitics and the Shock of Empires. Bruno, welcome to Shield of the Republic. Hello, and thanks for hosting me. Bruno, you, your book really talks about what are the appropriate sort of analogies that people might think of to understand better our current geopolitical moment. And you uh, talk about the uh, pre-World War I period. You talk about the interwar period. You talk about the period that uh, began the Cold War. How would you characterize the kind of moment we're in? Where does it fit into that larger sort of geostrategic and geopolitical picture? Well, thanks, Eric. I think we have to go beyond the question, is this a new Cold War? Is this not a new Cold War? A question that has kept uh, many intellectuals busy uh, over the past 10 years on both sides of the Atlantic. I think that what we are entering today, we, the Western world, but also the world at large, is something that has a little bit of the 19, of the uh, 1910s, the competition of empires, 
a little bit of the 1930s, the the rise of authoritarian regime, but also a large bit of the early 1950s, that is the beginning of the new Cold War. In, a, in, in other words, I think the 2020s are a little bit of the 10s, a little bit of the 30s, a little bit of the 50s. Uh, you know, each different historical era brings its own characteristics. But I think it's not an artificial analogy to say that we have a little bit of the tense with the clash of empires, with regional conflicts forecasting, foreshadowing the Great War. Um, a little bit of the 1930s because of successive aggressions by authoritarian regimes, by revanchist regimes which refuse, which refuse to accept what they saw as the dominant Anglo-Saxon powers, quote-unquote. Um, and we do have something that looks increasingly like the early 50s. I mean, Americans uh, know, will remember about the debate about Asia first, quote-unquote, you know, should the U.S. focus on Asia or on Europe? And many have said, I'm not the first one to say it, that maybe the war in Ukraine will be seen in retrospect as something akin to what the Korean War was, the Cold War, that is a major bloody interstate conflict which was in a, in a, in a sense the introduction to the uh, multi-decade Cold War. So that's my long answer to you, to your uh, simple question. A little bit of uh, three different uh, eras are good analogies to try to define the kind of uh, uh, competition, what you in the US call the strategic competition, which, which I think does not entirely capture uh, the era that is beginning now. Bruno, the, the thing that disturbs me a little bit about that is that first period ended up in World War I. That second period ended up in World War II. That third period nearly ended up in World War III. I mean, that do, do you intend those analogies to be as menacing as uh, they, you know, as I think they are? Well, first of all, uh, Elliot, I think these analogies are warnings. Uh, they should make us aware of the perils that we're going to face in the coming decades. But at the same time, uh, we should be aware that there are um, fire breaks or at least dampening mo dampening or moderating uh, instruments that did not exist in the 1910s and 1930s. And I, I call them in French the corde de rappel, which is the rappelling. I don't know if, how you translate that into uh, English when you do mountaineering, something that prevents you from falling. One of them is obviously, and it's perhaps the dominant one, nuclear deterrence. Um, nuclear deterrence is a very powerful instrument, probably the most important invention of 1945, maybe more important than the United Nations. Uh, it has worked remarkably well from that, from my standpoint. But it's, once again, something which did not exist in the uh, 1910s and 1930s. There's another moderating factor which so far continues to exist, although it's an open question whether it will still exist in 10 years from now. It is the fact that the economic interdependence between major poles of power is much more important than it was in the early part of the 19th century. Now, I'm very well aware of that. The old debate on whether or not inter economic interdependence helps preventing wars or whether it's actually uh, not relevant. I think there is good scholarship 
to demonstrate that it does have some value. If that is correct, then given that we, the West, that is the United States, Europe, and our East Asian partners are still going to be largely interdependent with China for a number of years, even though we're all decoupling, de-risking, etc., uh, I think this bodes fairly well for um, for predicting, a, or at least for for forecasting, a limited chance, a very limited chance of a major conflict, in particular between the U.S. and China, but also between the West and Russia in the coming years. So it's a moderate optimism that I'm proposing here. So, so let me see if I can uh, reduce that optimism just a little bit. Um, you know, the, the, I, I take your point about nuclear deterrence, but what strikes me is that whereas in the 50s, nuclear deterrence worked to the benefit of the West. And when I say the West, basically, I'm including the liberal democracies. So I'm, I am uh, perhaps inappropriately, you know, using the West to include Asia, uh, you know, Japan, South Korea, Australia and so forth. It, it, it helped protect us, and it specifically helped protect Europe, where you know the, the conventional odds uh, favored the Soviet Union. If I look at where we are now, it seems to me nuclear deterrence is increasingly going to be used against us. I mean, it'll be used against us. It has already been used against us by the Russians. I think you know Putin has been dangerously explicit about it, and I, I would say recklessly so. The Chinese are in the middle of this very large expansion of their uh, nuclear arsenal, and that's actually something we haven't yet really explored in depth on the podcast, Eric. I think we probably should at some point. There's a, I think, a very good chance that we'll be looking at Iranian nuclear weapons, uh, which again will be used to deter us. And what instead of nuclear deterrence making the world, you know, freeing us from the specter of conventional conflict. What nuclear deterrence may do is free them up to conduct war under a, a certain pretty high threshold because it, it deters Americans, Europeans, maybe Asians as well. Yeah, I think this is a good point, Eric, but uh, I have two comments on that. First of all, that when we refer to the early 50s, these were the early days of nuclear deterrence. We have all learned a lot from what the possession of nuclear weapons brings or does not bring to the world order. Um, I, this may not be a very popular thesis, but I do think that even today, nuclear weapons induce a sense of caution, of relative caution, in the mindset of Russian, uh, Chinese, North Korean or Pakistani um, uh, leaders. Uh, but to go to your main point, it is true that nuclear weapons uh, may prevent certain kinds of direct aggression, but uh, the, uh, the effect cuts both ways and it does enable countries which are protected by a nuclear umbrella to engage in limited aggression. Uh, but that's precisely my point. Even though it does help you know, Russia to invade Ukraine because Ukraine was not protected by nuclear weapons, even though it does help China to project its power in the South China Sea in particular, uh, it, the fact remains that if nuclear, the, the basics of nuclear deterrent theory are correct, then it will equally prevent them from directly 
attacking countries which have nuclear weapons or which are protected by nuclear weapons. So I do take your point, but I don't think this negates the overall effect of the possession of nuclear weapons, which not only play in their favor, it does also continue to play in our favor. The fact is that no country endowed with nuclear weapons has ever embarked in direct significant military aggression against a country which has nuclear weapons or is protected by nuclear weapons. Although that, of course, uh, is not the case for uh, proxy conflicts on the periphery of the of the holdings of the major powers. And uh, one of the early, uh, you know, in the late 1950s, I know you know well, uh, Bruno, additions to the literature and thinking on, uh, on nuclear deterrence was Glenn Snyder's notion of the stability-instability paradox, which you were really, in a, in a sense, I think, adverting to, which is at the strategic level, uh, we may not have to um, worry too much about uh, deterring a, an attack by the uh, PRC or Russia uh, with its nuclear arms against us, but in, uh, in places where, as you say, there's not an extended deterrent guarantee or nuclear weapons present themselves, uh, it becomes much more vague, as in, in the case of Ukraine or potentially in the case of uh, Taiwan or the South, uh, South China Sea. And I think, you know, therein lies the concern that people have about, you know, this uh, period that you describe. And I, I wonder if you could in particular unpack one idea because you in, introduce in your, uh, in your book the, the uh, notion of the return of sort of, these are my words, not yours, the sort of heartland, rimland, the geopolitical notion, that is to say, continental land powers, uh, which is the case with, for most of our adversaries, Russia, China, Iran, as opposed to maritime uh, powers on the periphery, which would include essentially the West and its allies in East Asia. How does that play into this kind of gray zone issue of of nuclear deterrence, in your view? Yes, thanks. Before I get to that point, let me get uh, uh, let me answer the uh, your your first point. You're absolutely right. What Glenn Snyder in 1959, I think, or 61, called the stability slash instability paradox, is indeed what I was uh, hinting at when saying that nuclear weapons cut both ways. They discourage open direct military conflict between countries which are protected by nuclear weapons, but they do encourage, to some extent, indirect uh, conflict or conflict by proxies. And, you know, after all, this is a little bit what we're seeing. I mean, this is not, uh, this is not um, uh, entirely different from what we're seeing in Ukraine today. But let me add something about deterrence. Deterrence is not only, as we all know, is not only nuclear. And I think there's an additional factor that I have not mentioned yet, but which is probably equally as important to um, to, to reinforce my point that the that the uh, that the risk of direct conflict between uh, the West of its adversaries is limited. The United States and its allies have constructed, maintained, and reinforced and enlarged a unique system of mutual defense guarantees, which I think acts as an additional uh, deterrent beyond uh, beyond the the the, uh, uh, the nuclear uh, beyond nuclear deterrence itself, and I think that in today's world, 
this is as important uh, maybe as nuclear weapons. Remember, since we mentioned Korea, remember that um, one of the reasons why Korea happened is that Dean Acheson said very explicitly that uh, Korea was not part of uh, the U.S. defense perimeter. So this was obviously a failure of deterrence. And I think the way we in the West and the U.S. in particular manipulates deterrence today much beyond uh, the mere nuclear factor is extremely important in the way uh, our adversary will be encouraged or discouraged to uh, to go against us and our uh, allies. So my point here is that an additional dampening factor on the risk of major war is uh, our our deterrence a network of alliances and bases and partnerships, which has no equivalent on the other side. This is why this is where, for instance, the analogy with the Cold War becomes more uh, less relevant, uh, because they used to be, roughly speaking, two blocks with two systems of alliances. Whereas today, I mean, the United States has two dozens of uh, of defense allies in the proper sense of the terms. Whereas uh, you know China has only uh, has only yeah. one, and uh, that's North Korea because on paper there's still an alliance between China and North Korea, and the Russian system itself is actually um, being eroded by the day. Russia is losing allies, so that there's an imbalance of uh, alliances, uh, which is something pretty unique, and which and which limits the analogy with um, the 21st, uh, sorry, with the 20th century. Now, coming back to your main question, yes, I do think, when I talk about the return of geopolitics, it's a very, uh, it's it's becoming a, a catchword that a lot of people are using, but I do mean it in the uh, literal historical sense of the term. We are witnessing the formation of what I call two families, not two blocks, but two families of countries with one being Eurasian was the partnership between defense between uh, the defense partnership between China and Russia at its core, but also increasingly with Iran. Remember, uh, you guys are experienced and seasoned um, uh, observers and policymakers. Uh, remember Evgeny Primakov in the nineties; he was literally dreaming of a grand alliance. This was during the Boris Yeltsin date, but Primakov was openly dreaming of a new alliance between Russia, China, and Iran. And this is exactly what is uh, what is being formed today. So I call it the new league of the three emperors. Uh, but this is Primakov's dream coming true, in a sense. And on the other side, you have a, a liberal family, the family of liberal democracies, very imperfect ones. So, but like in, and, and like in all families, you have you know, the distant uncle or cousin that makes trouble. There's the Hungarian one, the, Tur- the Turkish one. So these are families more than blocks, obviously. And at the core of the, the new Western world, there is the Anglo-Saxon, so to say. We, we, we in France like to use the expression Anglo-Saxon. I would say English-speaking, English-speaking family, which as has been the case for two centuries now, you know, is the core, uh, is the core of the West. So you have this two, these two families and in between them, you have the, the core, the, the, uh, um, the, uh, the, a space of countries going from the Balkans to the South China Sea, 
uh, which will the fate of which will largely determine the outcome of this new hybrid, not so-called, but probably not hot war. Uh, the choices which will be made in the coming decade by Turkey, by Iran, by India, you know, will India tilt towards the West or will, will it stay multi-aligned? These countries, which are geographically in between the Eurasian family and the and the uh, uh, and the liberal world, uh, will determine for large to a large extent uh, what the uh, what the outcome will be. But as ever, you know, as ever, the West will continue to be more an ID than a geographical expression. It's not a civilization in the sense, in the cultural sense of the term. We we I assume we. Uh, uh, we we consider that uh, uh, Japan and South Korea as as much part of the West as any other country. This is why I like to refer the West as a you know broadly speaking the thirty eight countries of the OECD that is you know democracies which are developed countries and which are based on on the rule of law. So let me, if I could, um, I want to push back just a little bit on the nuclear question before we drop it, but then go to your uh, description of these two families, which I think is a wonderful way of putting it. And it's a great overall picture. So just on the nuclear front, you know, I think it's worth remembering that the Chinese attacked American forces in South Korea. It wasn't just, the issue wasn't just deterring a North Korean invasion, but they actually attacked American forces when we had nukes and they didn't. The Argentines attacked the Brits when the, the Brits had nuclear weapons. And I think perhaps most interestingly, uh, the Egyptians and Syrians attacked the Israelis when I think they would have had every reason to think that the Israelis had nuclear weapons. And so, and and that last one I, th I find particularly troubling because I think, um, you know, this won't, this is no longer just a question of the United States, Soviet Union, or I mean, Russia, uh, China, you know, France, and the UK. I mean, there are lots of other nuclear actors. For that matter, you could say, Pakistan attacked India. We've had, we have had war between between nuclear powers in the subcontinent. So you know, I'm I I and I I wonder how that could spin out of control. So that was just a you know a uh, that's the esprit d'escalier as as we leave the nuclear question. I, I'm I'm glad you're asking this question. I'm actually just finishing another book in which I I, I take another look at these crises to see what you can actually establish as a real failure of nuclear deterrence or not. Well, let me take very briefly these, uh, each of these four, uh, each of these four episodes. Uh, first of all, China attacking U.S. forces. Well, you know, were U.S. forces in Korea explicitly covered or even implicitly covered by the U.S. nuclear deterrent? That was not obvious to the Chinese at the time. And I'm not entirely certain that it was obvious to the Americans, to the Eisenhower administration in particular. So I'm not sure that your first example was a failure of nuclear deterrence. It was technically a UN force and still is. By the way, absolutely. Absolutely. You're absolutely right, uh, Elliot. It was technically a UN force. And last time I checked, uh, the UN is not a nuclear power and uh, uh, for good reasons, I suppose. Uh, uh... Falklands, Falklands, this goes exactly to my, to my point, actually. There was, the, the Falklands were not British territory. There was not a single indication in British policy discourse that uh, the Falklands, a crown dependency, was covered by nuclear by the British nuclear deterrent. So that's that was irrelevant in a sense. Whether it was a failure of deterrence at large 
is another different question, more relevant to the question I asked about, you know, when we try to exercise deterrence, uh, we need to be very cautious about what we say uh, outside the nuclear realm about the territories that are, you know, in our defense perimeter, to use the words of Dean Acheson or not. The third example, uh, Egypt and the Yom Kippur War, is, is also a very interesting example. We now know that Anwar al-Sadat uh, was very much aware of the nascent Israeli nuclear capability, and it seems that he made a very conscious decision not to attack the core Israeli territory, the undisputed Israeli territory. So I don't view this, I don't view 1973 as a fate of nuclear deterrence at all. I do actually view it as a testimony to a, a to the fact that there was a learning curve in the Middle East about the Israeli nuclear deterrence, which started at that time. Finally, India, Pakistan. Now, uh, when Pakistan uh, became a nuclear, well, tested nuclear weapons along with India in 1998, the feeling to be endowed with that nuclear umbrella, irrespective of what exact Pakistani and, and Indian nuclear capabilities existed at the time, was something which probably helped the Pakistani military to make the decision to embark in a series of territorial encroachments in Kashmir, and which ended up being the, the, the so-called Kargil War. You know, analysts debate whether this should be called a war, whether you know, the threshold for war is generally, for political scientists, a thousand uh, combat deaths in a single year. But this was not undisputed Pakistani or Indian territory. This was Kashmir, uh, one of the most undisputed uh, or highly disputed, if you want to say, uh, territories in Asia. So again, on this fourth example, I'm not sure you can uh, actually uh, define it as a failure of nuclear deterrence. I think the jury's still out on this one, but I do view it just like 1973 with an important milestone in the learning curve of nuclear deterrence in the, in the Middle East. I think Cargill was also a very important milestone the learning curve um, of, uh, of nuclear deterrence in, in South Asia. So, so I'm surely tempted to quibble with each of your responses to those cases, but but we're gonna we'll defer that to when you publish the next book, and we'll bring you back to the podcast, and then we'll we'll uh, explore that. Um, I, but I just want to lay down a marker. I'm not sure I've, I'm fully convinced. Anyway, set that aside. Um, I I love uh, your that you know invoking the League of the uh, the Three Emperors. Um, and I, I find that very interesting because it seems to me you, you can make the case the West has actually consolidated its uh, uh, or it's increased its cohesion in the last decade or so. Um, I think you see that in the Indo-Pacific. You certainly see it in uh, NATO. Um, and that's which is which is very much a good thing, even despite, you know, the Hungarians and now the Slovaks um, doing what they do. What what is more interesting to me is whether that grouping of those three countries with others on the periphery like North Korea, who knows, maybe Venezuela, something like that, are they, um, how, how, how far can they come together? Uh, what are the things that kind of intrinsically pull them apart? And is there anything that the West can do 
to increase the divisions or do you just have to kind of watch and hope that eventually uh, the, those fissures will emerge and then you benefit from them? I think that the countries you're referring to are more an axis of convenience than anything else. These countries have common interests. Quite often they share a common worldview, but uh, it's clear that none of them wants to commit itself to the defense of another. I mean, Russia is certainly not interested in helping uh, China in a war for Taiwan. And China, even though it is supporting and will continue to support Russia and Ukraine, does not want the, the People's Liberation Army to intervene alongside uh, Ukraine, alongside Russia, even if the Russian territory, the internationally recognized Russian territory, was actually uh, attacked. So I don't think this will ever morph into a real full-fledged military alliance a la an Atlantic alliance, so to say. Um, but uh, unfortunately, there's not much we can do to split the map separate. I think it's a very Western dream. It's a, I call it the neo-Kissingarian dream, but you know, the people using the uh, Nixon goes to China reference are, um, are doing it a contretemps, uh, so to say. Different, different China, different Russia, different circumstances, different, I mean, there's so many differences that I don't think the 1972 uh, example is relevant for today. In fact, when people talk about, and I've seen that in the United States, and I do see that in Europe, in particular in France, where we have a very romantic view of Russia, at least many, uh, many uh, officials and politicians have, the belief that it's in our power to split Russia from China or to avoid Russia falling into the embrace of China, I think reflects a lot on uh, some kind of hubris on our end, the belief that we are the only ones to influence, to be able to influence the, uh, the, the great power relations. And, that, and, those, uh, and those countries are not sovereign actors which make their own decisions. I mean, Putin has always said that he saw Russia as a Eurasian power. He has made a conscious choice already some long time ago, way before Ukraine, that uh, he wanted to uh, to um, to get closer to China. Now, of course, the Ukraine war is bringing it even closer, and probably a little too much. I mean, as Boris Nemtsov said a uh, long time ago, he predicted that Putin would uh, make uh, Russia a mining colony of of uh, of uh, of China. This is you know this is. What, what may happen. But my bottom line is that uh, the belief that we can, we, the West, the US, Europe, uh, actually have the power to separate these two countries is something, is, is a strange form of hubris, I believe. Bruno, let me pull on that thread a little bit. So China, in your you know, family of nations, is a, is a continental power. But the thing that's given Americans the most pause has been the development of China's maritime power, very large building up of the PLA Navy, the creation of military capabilities that make it very difficult for the U.S. Navy, which is used to operating uh, pretty freely in the Western Pacific to do so without 
having to worry about uh, if there were a conflict about uh, Chinese military capabilities. And, and I take your point totally that, you know, it is the height of hubris for us to think that somehow we can, you know, peel Russia or China away from one another when they have uh, common interests. But it strikes me that their common interest is mostly negative, which is to say it's an interest in uh, thwarting what we like to call the rules-based international order, but essentially what you were talking about, the, the network of alliances that the U.S. has built up uh, since the late 1940s uh, with its other allies, uh, whether it's the multinational alliance in Europe or the bilateral alliances we have uh, in the Indo-Pacific and the special relationships we've developed with countries uh, in the Middle East. So it's it's largely a kind of negative interest that they share rather than a more positive interest. And to the degree that they are geographically contiguous, there is sort of, you know, uh, an area in Central Asia that is, uh, you know, a little uncertain for both and a potential area of competition for both. Um, and so while, again, I don't think that the West can, uh, you know, can force this or make it happen by some kind of brilliant Kissingerian policy, it does strike me that we can try and push China in the direction more of, of uh, its continental interests, which will inevitably bring it into conflict with Russia and, and create more conflict between the two. And that's something you can do maybe at the margin uh, to try and relieve some of the other uh, consequences of, uh, you know, of China's, for instance, big maritime buildup. Yeah, I think I see your point, Eric. And I, first of all, going to the going back to the question of the development of the Chinese Navy, uh, I believe, I mean, you guys are great military analysts and you have know these things much better than I do. But I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the PLA now has more ships than the U.S. Navy, which is something, you know, yes, definitely historical. Now, I still think that it takes decades for country's strategic culture or uh, strategic DNA to completely change. I mean, China will not be a global maritime power anytime soon. It's probably going to get there, or at least it's getting in that direction, but it's going to take them. So, so that's, that's my uh, first point. By the way, when one talks about you know, a hypothetical conflict or war between uh, the United States and China, I think there are two dimensions that I always bring to the table. I'd be glad to have your reactions on that because you know much more about these things than I do. That wants to remind people that the PLA has zero experience in combat, whereas the United States and the West has decades of constant um, of constant engagement in major war for good or bad reasons. But that's that that that's irrelevant. And two that like most authoritarian states, uh, China does not give a lot of leeway or margin of maneuver to it uh, to the lower echelons, which is something that may play out in some kind of uh, when when the maneuver and the war does not go get into does not go um, exactly as planned as most wars do. This may have an impact. Although you know, we can discuss that. You know if how a Chinese military unit fights when it believes it's fighting for its homeland, you know. But but that these are two interesting 
I think, indispensable dimensions of looking at the scenario of a U.S.-China uh, US -China war. Um, now, your other point about these countries having mostly a negative agenda in common, that is true, but to a certain extent only. I mean, let's look at, for instance, the so-called disinformation pact that appears to have been concluded between Moscow and Beijing uh, a couple of years ago. You know, this is obviously an area where there are many avenues of, co of positive cooperation for them. I don't know to which extent this really, uh, this really translates into uh, concrete cooperation, but for them, it's a positive uh, agenda. Now, your third point is an interesting one to which I'm not sure I have really an answer, but let me give you, uh, let, me, let me actually illustrate your point by saying that there are potentially two geographical areas where there are diverging interests between Moscow and Beijing. One is Central Asia. The other is the High North. Central Asia is the area where, um, just like Russia and Turkey in the Caucasus, it's more a, it, it should ideally be for both countries a condominium. But condominiums you know, have a limited duration. So how long was, will this competition slash cooperation between the two countries um, can last? Can it actually sustain a growing differential of power between China and Russia? Uh, these are important questions to which I don't have any immediate answers, but which lead me to... Um, to side with those who say that in the next 20 years, there may be as many avenues of disagreement and competition between the two than avenues of agreement and cooperation. The other is the high north. Now, this is very interesting because, um, should, could I start by saying that I don't believe that the Arctic is the new battle space and that you know countries, the West, China, Russia will fight openly in the Arctic, this is a horrible place to 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 maneuver and to uh, and to fight. However, however, Russia considers that the northern maritime route is actually its territory, its waters. Now, if indeed in twenty years from now, probably not before, it does become uh, nearly all year round an important um, transit lane, in particular for Chinese trade, then. Uh, you may have you know, important disagreements between the two about who should control those men. By the way, this actually brings me to another point that I was trying to allude to earlier on about the future of economic interdependence. Will in 20 years from now, China need to export as much as it, as it does today to the West? So that's an open question. You know, I think economic interdependence, fortunately or, or unfortunately, will stay with us for a long time, that we can decouple, de-risk, uh, and French shore, as you say in the U.S., uh, for some areas. But, you know, it's, we're, going not, we're not going to be completely decoupled from China for a very uh, long time. So my bottom line is that if that trade interdependence is maintained in 20 years from now, then it may uh, that it may lead to some frictions between Moscow and Beijing about the control and mastering of the Arctic uh, sea routes and the northern maritime route in particular. You know, this 
absolutely fascinating. We could go on in this vein for a while, but I was wondering if maybe we could zoom in a little bit and start with uh, start with France. Um, I I have to say I have been baffled watching President Macron. Uh, who is clearly a very smart guy. I don't think anybody can uh, doubt that. And at this point is a you know, pretty experienced uh, uh, political leader. But I think both on Russia, Ukraine, and now on Israel, Gaza, there's just an enormous amount of zigzagging. And it's, it's somewhat baffling to me. Could you, and, and perhaps to others as well, could you explain it? Oh, uh, okay. I'll... <laughs> I do it as best as I can. First of all, he is a very smart person. But um, I'm going to give you, to reveal to you and to your uh, to your um, audience the name of the most important advisor to Macron on the issues you talked about. His name is Emmanuel Macron. So basically, Macron only listens to himself. So don't look for hidden influences. He's his own person. He's smart, but he also believes he's extremely smart, so does not really need any advisors. And frankly, I can tell you that the people around him, some of them are, are, are my friends, uh, are literally sometimes banging their heads on the wall because once again, the president has not followed the, you know, what, what had been prepared with him, not only for him, but for him. So look, he's his own man. He improvises a lot. He doesn't like being told what to do. And I think he is qu- the quintessential Macron policy on many, on many issues, domestic and international, is to walk a fine line between two different sides of an argument. On Ukraine and Gaza, the two, two very different things. It's two very different things. On Ukraine, I think he genuinely thought for a long time that he had a role to play, that France had a specific role to play because of our imagine spatial relationship with Russia um, in trying to prevent the Ukraine war. And it took him a while to realize that Putin had fooled him. Putin took him at his game. Macron is very good at seducing people. He took him a while before realizing that Putin has taken him to his own game. You know, at some point he said, well, he lied to me. Duh, yes, that's what Putin does, you know. But no one should uh, doubt his commitment now to supporting Ukraine, especially that he has realized that support to Ukraine and integration uh, of Ukraine into Western institutions, the EU and NATO, is an important feature of his own European agenda. So in his own interests also, not only because of our values and interests, He's, he does support Ukraine. So he's fallen on the right side of history, so to say. On Gaza, it's a complex, it's a much more complex issues, uh, issue. He has been, remember, this is a guy that in 2018 welcomed Netanyahu in, in Paris and called him BB. You know, you know, this is not what your quintessential French, French president does. But he has a, you know, he has a, something for bad people, bad guys, you know, the, if I may say so, you know, he likes, he used to say during the campaign 2016 in 2017, I like to buy a stock when it's low. So he did with Netanyahu at the time, what he always was also trying to do with Donald Trump. Anyway, fast forward to 
today. I think he's genuinely committed to his, you know, to the evidence that Israel has the right to self-defend, has the right to, to defend itself. But when he, when, um, when he sees the images and terrible human toll of the operations on Gaza, he's aware of two things that the risk of ex- escalation and unwanted effects of this war actually um, are become um, impossible to um, to control, and he's also taking another hat, which is France as a mediating power, someone who can talk to pretty much everyone in the in the region, which is true. Actually, this is the first time in a long time that we can actually, as France. Uh, have a, um, you know, a direct dialogue and connection with Israel, with the Gulf countries, and with several other European, Ar- uh, sorry, with several uh, important Arab states. So I think I understand what he's trying to do. The problem is that once again, um, his public expression is way too loose. The way he talked to the BBC about you know civilians, dead civilians in Gaza, and babies and grandmothers. Uh, that was not the sort of statesperson's language that one should have at this point, which is given the gravity of the events, uh, being very cautious about the kind of words you use and the kind of circumstances you use them. So, Bruno, you know, Emmanuel Macron famously said a couple of years ago during the Trump years that NATO was brain dead. And because you are quite expert on alliances, has have written a lot about them and have, you know, talked about them uh, in this podcast. What is What do you think the French assessment is of, you know, NATO today? It seems to have, I mean, have been revivified by the uh, conflict in Ukraine and seems to be operating, you know, reasonably well, I think. And actually, if I could just build on that, uh, sort of to revise and extend uh, Eric's uh, remarks, you know, it's been very interesting to watch the evolution of French policy towards NATO from, you know, the Gaullist position on it to Sarkozy, you know, really essentially re-entering the military alliance. And, you know, is is that something we should expect to continue? I mean, is there a, uh, well, let me backtrack a bit. I, th- I think sometimes people think that there's an enormous amount of continuity in French foreign policy, uh, despite the move from president to president. Do, do you believe that's the case? So I think we're, uh, we're, I'd like to draw you out on that one as well. Overall, the answer is yes, Elliot. Uh, likewise, I mean, I think people from the uh, on the outside uh, underestimate the amount of continuity that exists, for instance, in U.S. foreign policy in many in many respects. So that is true. But I think one important distinction uh, to make to answer your question is to differentiate between Macron and the establishment, so to say. That is, the, the, uh, the French political military establishment. Look, my deep-seated conviction is that Macron has no affection for the US and for NATO. He's not a guy. You know, people get it wrong because they say his work was the international finances. He say he's a young, modern man. No, they get it wrong. He's a very old-school person. And I think he's probably, mark my words, the least pro-American of our presidents uh, since uh, since Pompidou. 
I think so. Um, so he accepts the existence of NATO. He is un- very honest when he says, along with you know others, you know, well, defend each and every square inch or square you know, centimeter uh, of NATO territory. I think he's honest and sincere, but he's not. Uh, you know, he doesn't get emotional when he talks about the Atlantic Alliance. Uh, and by the way, it's it's okay as far as I'm concerned, as long as he's faithful to the basic commitments of the NATO uh, alliances. He realizes, he regrets, but realizes that most of our European partners are very attached to NATO and don't want to consider any alternative. By the way, he's not asking them to consider alternatives. Now, the problem is that uh, 2023 is very close to 2024, and you will hear increasingly uh, people in France say, huh, it may very well turn out that after decades of being wrong, we will actually be right. That is, the U.S. will leave Europe eventually. I used to say that there were three uh, incorrect, uh, three false narratives in Europe. Uh, one was the French narrative, which for decades has been the U.S. will eventually leave Europe. The other one was the reverse one, the German one. The U.S. will always be there. And the third false narrative was what I call the Polish narrative. So it doesn't matter. As long as the U.S. troops are there, we're fine. So there are, I think these three narratives can be challenged. However, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not uh, unrealistic to imagine a U.S. president in January 2025 tweeting or xing, posting something along the lines of uh, uh, I no longer want the U.S. to fulfill its defense commitment with the alliance. I, I half-jokingly say that you know it takes a tweet to break the alliance, not to break NATO, but the alliance in terms of this ex- extraordinary tool of deterrence. Because when Russia and other adversaries of the West will see a U.S. president openly reneging on, on reneging on its commitments for mutual defense, then, you know, whatever unit, whatever U.S. unit you have on your territory begins to be highly devalued. So that's a very long way to say that I think the French in general are very much and very concretely attached to NATO. Uh, we, you know, we take initiatives, we have taken this initiative of having a NATO presence in Romania. That was a French, you know, that was a French idea. And we're there. We are, you know, active participants in exercises and nuclear deterrence, of course. So there's no reason to challenge the French commitment to the alliance and to Article 5 in particular. But there are reasons to believe that Macron himself does not celebrate every night and every morning the shared values and the and the ideals of the transatlantic partnership. That's the way I would put it. Bruno, we're running low on time, and we don't want to detain you uh, too much longer. But your last comments, I think, lead uh, very nicely to uh, where I wanted to end our conversation today, which is uh, you have been a longtime observer of the United States, among other things, and uh, you. We're talking about uh, the potential, uh, quite obviously, of a, a second Trump presidency uh, and what that might mean for for the alliance um, and for deterrence implicitly. Um, 
how does the current moment of uh, very dysfunctional American politics, uh, you know, look to you and and look to a, an, a European audience? Uh, you know, my former boss Bob Gates uh, had a an article in Foreign Affairs uh, a couple of weeks ago called "The Dysfunctional Superpower." We we hope to have him on actually Shield of the Republic soon um, to talk about that article, but. In it, he basically said that, um, you know, the United States, it's sort of the old Pogo, uh, you know, comic strip. You know, we have we have found the enemy and it is us that, you know, the biggest challenge to the West in this, you know, new geopolitical realm that you've been describing and talking about is the willingness of the United States to continue to, as John Kennedy once said, pay any price, bear any burden, and continue to be the leader of this, uh, you know, family of nations. Look, it's very easy for a European, especially for a Frenchman, to lecture the United States. I'm going to refrain from doing that and say two things. Thank you. (laughs) Um, First of all, um, seasoned observers, and I believe that I'm, uh, reaching the age where I can qualify as one, have heard every 10 years or so uh, worries and, uh, about the temptation in the U.S. to refrain from adventurism abroad, to focus on uh, healing the wounds at home, etc., etc., um, especially refrain from intervening in the Middle East. But the Middle East has the bad habit of you know, reminding itself of its presence, uh, I often joke about you know, maybe Eric or Idiot have heard me say that, but each and every incoming U.S. president should have a plaque in the Oval Office saying, you might not be interested in the Middle East, but the Middle East will be interested in you. So I'm cautiously optimistic because I remain fascinated by the willingness and ability of the United States, even with all its travails and problems to immediately react and be up to the challenge when uh, when it's needed. And I have, I have to say that uh, adversaries of the West, in particular adversaries, enemies of the United States, always underestimate it at their own peril. Look, who would have predicted that, I didn't count the number of ships and, uh, and the horsepower, which is present in Melissa, who would have predicted that a that Joseph Biden would project so quickly so much American uh, sea and air power in the region after October the, the 7th. Um, you know, so I think this is reassuring in a sense because for all the problems and, and, and you know, in, in, uh, and dysfunctions of the U.S. system, it's also one of the most stable political systems in recent uh, world history. Um, so, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic because I've seen too many bad bets on European power, on, on U.S. power over the past 30 years. And that's a bet I'm not ready to make. I'm I, The safe bet today is the continuation of the U.S. ability and most of the time willingness to exercise its responsibility throughout the world when it's needed. That's a safe bet for me. Well, that's reassuring. Thank you, Bruno. It does take a foreigner from time to time 
to uh, to cheer you up. It happens in my country too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was going to say that this is an uncharacteristically cheerful and optimistic note on which to end an episode of Shield of the Republic, which normally is a a font of doom and gloom about the future of the international order. Our, our guest today has been Bruno Terpé, one of France's leading voices on international affairs. Uh, Bruno, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you uh, back with us, either beaming in from Paris or uh, on one of your uh, occasional visits uh, stateside. And and I think both Elliot and I hope uh, to see you in Paris at some point. Absolutely. Thank you for hosting me. 